This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey everybody, Jeff Kasouf here with another episode of Kicking Back, a podcast brought to you by The Equalizer. On this episode, I'm joined by Danielle Slayton, former professional player and United States international. She played for the Carolina Courage, not to be confused with the current day North Carolina Courage. Uh, back in the day with WSA. We talk a little bit about that and her playing career, which was unfortunately cut short, but relevant to the here and now, she's a Santa Clara alum, part of that first team that won a national championship, the first national championship for Santa Clara 20 years ago, and they just won their second, and she, along with many other alums, were in the crowd. Uh, A really cool conversation uh, about a cool moment for her and for that group. And she is also, Danielle Slayton is also going to be one of the announcers, one of the analysts on this summer's Tokyo Olympic Games soccer broadcast. So excited to talk to her about that. We talk a lot about her broadcasting career, how it's been shaped by her playing career and how she brings some of that experience and how she takes a teaching approach to her analysis and her on-air time. So excited to bring you this. Please go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and you don't miss any past episodes. We've had some great guests recently and some more great guests planned. Please rate and review this podcast. It really helps us. And without further ado, this is Danielle Slayton on another episode of Kicking Back. Looking forward to bringing this to you and hope you enjoy. Welcome everybody to another edition of Kicking Back podcast brought to you by the Equalizer and Blue Wire podcast. I'm Jeff Kasuf, your host, and today I'm joined by Danielle Slayton. Very excited to have her on. Danielle, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here, Jeff. Excited to talk to you. Yeah, thank you for joining. Um, Danielle Slayton, obviously, uh, if you follow the sport, and and I think, as I like to say, if you're listening to this, I'm I'm sure you probably do, uh, U.S. national team career, pro career, and and maybe most relevant, um, we'll get to a couple of things, but the most pressing a timely topic here, a Santa Clara alum, uh, a national champ from from back in the day, and a fan in the stands for title number two for the Broncos the other week. Uh, we saw you on the ESPN feed. How was that to, to witness uh, as a fan after doing it yourself as a player in that jersey? It was, it's been an awesome whirlwind, what, last seven, 10 days for sure. And so fun to be in the stands. I'm so glad I got on a plane. I was debating. Um, I would have had some serious FOMO had I not been there to celebrate the Broncos victory. Um, But just really enjoyable. I mean, we work in the sport. And so often when I'm at soccer games, it's because I'm working or broadcasting or have something, you know, to do in terms of evaluation, but to really just get to be a fan and to scream your head off uh, was was such a treat. And uh, I'm just really proud of what they accomplished. How quickly did that come together? I mean, that's not an easy flight either. Going Bay Area to Raleigh, is that even direct or? Fortunately, right now, um, there is a direct on JetBlue Sunday night. And so 
Yeah. The, um, let's see. The, the semifinal match against UNC was on Thursday. So Friday, Saturday, a few of my former teammates and I were, you know, throwing around text. Are you going to go? Like, we, you know, we were talking a big game, like definitely going. And then they won and we were like, all right, let's, let's go. Like, I don't know. It's hard to get there. I have work, you know, family obligations, but actually Leslie Osborne was the first one to, to pull the trigger. And she texted on maybe Friday afternoon. And she said, I got my tickets. Like who's coming with me. Here's my flight. This is where, you know, this is where I'll be. And so she really was the the motivator. And a few more of us jumped on board. Allie Wagner joined Leslie, um, Leslie Osborne, as I mentioned, Brandy Chastain, all of us flew on a red eye on Sunday night. So we were coming in hot about 5 a.m. on Monday morning. And uh, it was a whirlwind 36 hours, but we were back in California on Tuesday afternoon. Wow. Wow. Um, who, who's the rowdiest of that group? Cause we saw like what was happening. We saw the camera shots here and there, but yeah. uh, it was a big group. Yeah, it was, I would say there was probably about 30 alums. Um, and everyone is rowdy in their own kind of way. Like Ali Wagner is definitely like an aggressive cheer. Brandy's super emotional. Um, Jordan Angeli is like captain bubbly, positive, just like running around super fan. Um, so I feel like you could kind of see maybe all of our personalities come out in, in various ways if you saw us cheering. But uh, it's just a the thing that stood out to me the most is that we had such a range of alums. You know, we had folks who played at Santa Clara in the 90s to folks who just graduated a few years ago. And maybe it's this way at other schools. I think soccer, you know, certainly brings people together. But the fact that Santa Clara is a, a really small, very kind of family knit community in many ways, I think there's this really tight bond that we feel even with people you didn't play with even people who aren't your year or your class and so to come together and to celebrate obviously a huge moment in our program's history um it's really kind of a bucket list kind of moment in a lot of ways yeah it looked like there was that bond and i, I imagine it probably brought back some memories for you of of uh doing that yourself Certainly. I mean, it's, <laughs> I can't believe it's been 20 years. It makes me feel, you know, both proud and old at the same time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think when you, you think about how hard it is to, to win a national championship in the NCAA and particularly for these women this year, how hard it was this year, given all of the, the stress of the global pandemic and COVID, but um, it, it's just it was a good day back in 2001 and it was a good day just a few days ago in 2021. And it's something you'll always take with you and always remember. I think as wonderful as it is to play in Olympics and for world cups and play for the national team, the national team chooses you. Whereas when you look at your college, like you choose your college. It's kind of the one thing and the one team often you get to pick. And so we all, picked Santa Clara. We all chose to be there. And so I think in that way, the NCAA and college soccer is, is unique and special. Well, that's, that's very nicely said. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that is a, a world where athletes are drafted and traded. And um, even today, their rights are traded, not even their actual contracts. So right. that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, what you said there too, I, I I can't think of the last time, and this is maybe the the um, the media space, which we can talk about a little bit. But you said I hadn't seen a game for fun in so long. I 
occasionally have that thought and it's, it's a little bit of a, a weird one and a bummer, I guess, but it is like, I, I mean, every time you sit down now, it's, I'm watching this for work. I mean, it's fun, but it's work. And just being able to sit there and be a fan is, is a pretty rare thing, I guess. It, it completely is. And especially I feel like in my role as a, as an analyst, I'm when I'm watching the soccer game, I'm analyzing it. So I'm watching it like a coach would, or at least I'm trying to. Um, so you're not, I mean, it's enjoyable, but the mental energy you're going through and how you're trying to process things is, is work, as you said. And so to just get to, to enjoy it, I mean, for sure, like there was a lot of tactical talk going on in the stands. I mean, we were debating, are they pressing high enough? Who's doing this? Well, how should they be defending against Florida state? Don't get me wrong. Like those conversations were happening, but it wasn't um, in a work sense. It was more in a like passionate, how can I help this team in any possible way that I can sense of that? makes any sense at all. <laughs> yeah. No, fun, a fun, uh, I'm sure that there was some, uh, celebratory drinks or whatnot afterward, or, or maybe before, I don't know, not celebratory yeah. before, but, uh, we'll just say <laughs> yes to all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Santa Clara, 2001 national champs, uh, as, as Danielle here knows quite well. And then 2000, 2021, 2021 champs, uh, which is cool. Cause it's not, um, I don't know. I don't think this is offensive to say it's not like the traditional kind of, you know, North Carolina type yeah. of, you know, Stanford, who I'm sure, you know, you guys shake your fists at down the road. But, you know, the, the kind of usual, uh, I feel like a college cup is kind of often the the same, same players, so to speak, uh, with a different, you know, rotating cast of, of graduates, basically, uh, many times. So, yeah, it was it was special. And I think, you know, maybe there's a little chip on your shoulder as a as a mid-major, if you if you will, in many regards. You know, I think uh Santa Clara back in the 90s and early 2000s, you know, we did a pretty good job of, of fighting our way into the final four pretty consistently. But I feel like when uh, the kind of we had a lot of that conference realignment going on in the last 10 years or so, and you saw that among the power five conferences, in many ways like I don't have the statistics to support this, but it felt like the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. And as, you know, a smaller school, it became tougher and tougher to compete with, you know, as you mentioned, the UNCs and the Florida States and the Stanfords and the UCLAs of the world. And so to find a way to, to compete with these Power Five conferences um, is, is no small feat. And I think as Santa Clara Bronco, like, I recognize that and uh, it makes the accomplishment maybe even a little bit bigger in that way. And, and maybe too, for you, um, you know, San Jose being home then and now, um, you know, kind of the, the home for you, not, not a, uh, a second home, so to speak, as, as we were kind of joking about before, um, you know, extra special, I imagine, you know, there's been a little bit of, of buzz around that, that market potentially on, on the pro side, which, Back in the day, I guess cyber rays obviously was was uh, one of them. But um, you know, what do you think about that market, that area? I mean, the, the soccer is so rich. We just talked about Stanford. I guess I'm I got yelled at for my classification of North Northern California by <laughs> by a reader uh, recently. So I will try not to be over generalizing the area, but just the general vicinity is very soccer rich, very women soccer rich, um, and seems like it could be primed for. For sure. For sure. I think, um, you know, Northern California, specifically the Bay, I mean, all of California, let's be honest, in many ways, um, 
California is a soccer hotbed and uh, being someone who was born and raised in San Jose, played collegiate soccer here. This is where I learned the game. This is where I fell in love with the game. Um, and I think this, this place breeds a lot of quality women's soccer players. You know, you have the sunshine, so maybe, you know, you get to play outside on great surfaces pretty consistently, but there's also a high level of competition and investment in, in the youth space and the college space. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, hopefully the professional space, uh, in, in more ways in the future, but, um, you just think about the women's soccer players who have come out of this area, like both historically and even today. I mean, you think of, gosh, Brandy Chastain and Julie Foudy back in the day. Sorry, ladies, you're not that old. Just back in the day a few years ago. Um, but then even today, I mean, you look at the women's national team and you think of Alex Morgan at Cal and Kristen Press and Kelly O'Hara. I mean, and the number of women who are going into the NWSL from these colleges and, and the area here too. Naomi Gurma is somebody who comes to mind um, at Stanford as well and Kiki Pickett. So I think, you know, it's it's an area that I think we need to continue to find ways to, to invest in it, continue to grow it. I think it's better for the area. It's better for the country. It's better for the women's national team. I think it's an important piece in the fabric and the landscape of soccer in our country. And, you know, locally there, obviously, San Jose earthquakes have been there, uh, not quite continuously, I guess, but for the, for <laughs> a while, yeah. um, you know, you're involved there with the earthquakes on the on the broadcast front. And, you know, that, that's something I want to talk a little bit with you about is, you know, we uh, we just recently got the news. Uh, we did. I, I'm sure you've had it for a little bit of, of you'll be on the call uh, among the Olympic team for for Olympic women's soccer or both men's and women's. Yeah, I haven't got my schedule yet. So um, for sure, I'll be doing some women's games, but uh, they're still sorting through men's games. I hope I get to do a little bit of both, to be honest. Okay, nice. Well, we, we got that news, you know, um, Olympics, uh, playing-wise, broadcasting-wise, you know, what is that for you? I mean, that must be, I know you've got that experience, obviously, as I allude to, but um, being able to call an Olympics is has got to be up there on the, the bucket list of the broadcasting career, right? For sure. Um, you know, this will be my second Olympic Games and it's always an honor when you're you're asked to participate in these big worldwide events. Um, and there's nothing like calling in Olympics and in a World Cup, right? The 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 rhythm of a tournament and being part of something that is just so much bigger than you um, and such a global event is is really special and i don't take it lightly um it's such an honor i love calling you know individual games at the collegiate level or even season-long you know games for the for the earthquakes for example but there's nothing quite like a tournament and um especially to me to be able to call call women's games which we're starting to see more and more on television and more consistently but I think that there there needs to be and continue to be avenues for people to see women's football and uh, the Olympics. It is front and center for sure. What what got you into broadcasting? <laughs> That's a funny question. Um, a good question. So I was a uh, coaching soccer at Northwestern University. Gosh, almost fifteen years ago now, and the Big Ten Network, which was the first college network to start in like. 07, 08, some, some time around then. I was working in the Big Ten and had decided that I wanted to leave coaching and kind of see what was 
what else was out there and you know what part of me could contribute in different ways to the world and someone from the big 10 knew knew i was leaving and said hey can you talk about soccer on television and i said yeah of course and i had no idea what i was doing jeff i was so terrible to start but I think we were all learning. And that was the beauty of the Big Ten Network at the time was it was a new network and everybody was figuring things out. So I had the chance to learn and grow and make mistakes like a lot of my colleagues did too. And that's really where I continued to fall in love with the game in a different way. You know, I think when you're an athlete and my career was cut short by injury, there is a little bit of a grieving process and a little bit of a mourning process. But starting to get back into television after a few years and and talk about soccer and and find a way for the game to be in my life in a longer way, potentially, and in a different way was really uh, an important piece of my journey. And so I will be forever grateful to the the Big Ten for giving me that chance. How do you try to approach broadcasting with that lens of being a former player where you want to inject that expertise or maybe that insight that people who haven't played or aren't in that locker room might not see, but you also don't want to make it about yourself or your playing days, right? So how do you kind of find yourself maybe striking that balance? Yeah. Um, it's funny. I mean, maybe, maybe because I started at the big 10, the approach that I still take to this day was influenced a lot by that. I mean, I was super nervous as probably many people are when you're doing something new and, and, you know, trying to figure it out. And so I remember having these conversations with myself, like the only people who are watching are their moms. It's okay. Don't worry, Danielle, you'll be fine. Um, And so I really have always kind of taken a, a teaching point of view of, you know, if I can just teach Susie's mom about why Susie is doing this out on the field. Um, I can explain that. And I also maybe come from a, a background, both of my parents are teachers. So maybe that's a little bit ingrained in me. And I had a dad who was a football track guy. So didn't know that much about soccer and was wonderful in the sense that he, he asked me a lot of questions and like, I could teach him about the game. So often I picture him, me and him sitting on a couch and I'm just explaining what I'm seeing or what's going on uh, as if I'm talking to him on the couch, not, you know, thousands of viewers who are watching. So I feel like I've always kind of taken that approach of trying to find a way where you can teach somebody something, but do it in a way where if you're talking to the soccer expert, you're not talking down to that person, but you're also approachable to somebody who's just being introduced into the game. So finding that right balance is a challenge. It's even more of a challenge in an event like the the Olympics, because you might have more casual viewers who don't tune into soccer regularly, but tune in because it's the Olympics. So I feel like I, I try to be a teacher. I try to make it simple. I try to break down plays in a way where anybody can understand. I try not to get too much into the lingo. Um, but that's just my style. That's just the way that I want to have I guess my brand presented on TV and the way that I enjoy talking about the game and the way I see it and the way hopefully I communicate it articulately to other people who are watching. Absolutely. I like the way that you kind of explain that, that approach. That's uh, I will say, I think the moms could be the toughest critics though. I'm sure you've probably (laughs) got an email or two or a, 
I don't know what that would have been back then. It was probably right. just before totally. Twitter. Totally. Well, it's funny too, because I mean, I think one thing too, that so many players can bring as an analyst is sharing that experience on the field, right? Like giving the viewer insight into what a player might be feeling or what might be going on in the locker room. But I also too have a tremendous amount of respect for the players. I know how hard it is to do what I am saying that they should be doing or what we are demanding or expecting of them. I know it's really, really hard. And so I have a lot of empathy for that. I hope that comes through at times of, look, like what I'm saying is really, really difficult. I still expect you to do it. So I'm not coming down on them personally. I'm not coming down on them in a harsh way, but it does give me the ability to critique from a place of understanding and empathy. And I hope too, that buys me some, some credibility and some authenticity, not only with the viewers, but also with the players when they, they might hear about my comments or, or might watch the game back. I, I do think in general that that is a, that approach is sort of uniform respected from, from players that it's, you know, I mean, certainly that still, I don't think anybody wants to hear somebody else talking about them saying, you know, that didn't go well or they didn't execute it, but at least when it is from that position that it's, you know, it's respected as a, as a sense of, especially for, for yourself when, you know, you've been there and done it, it's not, um, you know, maybe, maybe I get a little less leeway in that kind of a, a scenario, but, uh, well, I mean, there, there are, I think, we're seeing kind of a, a cool trend. I don't know if trend would be the word, but I mean, there are a lot of players, um, t- teammates of yours, even from from back in the day, that are now um, in the analyst roles. We're, we're seeing. I'd like to say a few more than before. Maybe is that? Um, do Do you think there's any reason for that? I don't know. I don't know the logic or or why it's happening. Um, I think. Perhaps, you know, we're, we're starting to see a push to have a more, a, a wider variety of voices, right? So, you know, there is a little bit of a focus on, on diversity and inclusion and hearing, not just seeing, but actually hearing the opinions of, of people who have been there and who can provide maybe a little bit of a different viewpoint or a different way of, of seeing the game or really moving the, the ideas that we have in football forward. So, um, I think maybe that that has a little bit of something to do with it, but um, I also think too, and, and I don't want to speak for others, so I'll just speak for myself. <laughs> but um, like I feel we're in a time right now where it's not just you can do more than just be a player. It's not just good enough to have a, have been a player twenty years ago, right? Like. I have a a role in this game and I have an opinion about this game and I'm maybe in a position to to do something about it or to leave a mark that isn't just about how far I can kick a soccer ball. And so I feel this way when I think about how I'm going to pay it forward or how I'm going to continue to to move the game forward for the next generation. I mean, when I was a player, all we talked about on the national team was how we can do better, how we can pave the way for the next generation of players. Well, now it's not just paving the way for the next generation of players. It's paving the way for the next generation of players and coaches and analysts and GMs and owners and all of these things. And there's no reason why we can't be a part of the game at every level. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything. Which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. 
Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, and and we talked about um, you know broadcasting. You'd be on the Olympic call. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the the U.S. the current team here, um, the landscape of of the tournament you'll be calling. Obviously, two time defending World Cup champs, um, Olympics last time out, which would be five years at that point with everything that's happened. Um, you know, it was a low point, I guess, for the program in terms of major tournaments. Literally, um, what are you expecting? How do you view the field right now uh, of this this twelve team tournament going into it, uh, and particularly where the U.S. stands in your mind? Flat out, the U.S. should win the gold medal. Like you know, they should. They are the best team in the world, in my mind. They are the deepest team the U.S. has maybe ever had in history. Um, I mean, if you make this roster of eighteen for Vlatko like credit and praise goes to you because there's probably about 25 or 28 that could potentially be worthy of making this roster and there's just not the space for them. So um, to be fair, like I haven't dug into the weeds and done my research on on where everybody stands right now. So I'm sure I will have many more opinions uh, in a month's time. But the reality is, is the Olympics, you've got to start fast and hot. I mean, there's 12 teams. Like everybody's good. It's not like you're going to have a cakewalk really through any stage or any phase of the group stage, um, let alone when you get onto the, the quarter semis and beyond. So I think you look back to the idea that, you know, no, no team has ever been able to win an Olympics and then win, or excuse me, win a world cup and then win an Olympics in the following year. But Hey, it's not the following year. It's two years. So maybe that plays into the hands of the U S who knows you put that little chip on their shoulder from the defeat they had against Sweden in, in 2016 in Rio. And I think they're poised to, to have a good tournament. I think you always have to be a little bit lucky in a tournament as well. So you never know how that's going to, how that's going to go. But to me, by far, the United States are the favorites. And I say that trying to put my analyst hat on and not my, you know, fan alumni hat on, if you will. Um, but they've got to get lucky. They've got to continue to evolve as the tournament evolves. You want to be playing your best soccer at the end, not the beginning. Um, but from what I've seen in, in the preparation so far, and we'll know a lot more after we see these games in June against Portugal and Jamaica and Nigeria. Um, but they're they're doing well and they'll be prepared and uh, it's going to be a story if they don't take home the gold medal in my mind. I was going to say, I think that stat of, of not winning an Olympics following a World Cup is, is so driven by, the at least from what we've seen from the U.S., you know, certainly in 2015 to 16, that quick turnaround that there's a burnout, you know, not just from the fact that it's back-to-back major tournaments, and maybe this you could argue this is self-inflicted, but like the U.S. wins a World Cup, certainly in today's day and age, and they've got – in 2015, it was this six-month – it was like a celebrity concert tour. I mean, it was – you know, it went into the the Wambach retirement game. It went into December. And, you yeah. know, by the time you get to December, you sort of – would have a couple of weeks off. You're back in January camp. And, you know, that's where I think you could argue that, that there's that sort of maybe self-inflicted exhaustion. But 
now you have the year in between that yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know that that means the U S goes and wins it, but you know, I, I think you could eliminate that factor or excuse if you want to use that term. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there's some validity to that certainly. And then if you want to take that even a step further, right? Like you, you have the win in 2019 and then man, you get a serious amount of rest in 2020. It's not just like, we're not playing all these victory tour games. It's legitimate. Shut it down as, as it was, you know, for, for so many around the U S around the world, when it came to, came to sports being played. So you like to think that, these players are maybe the most rested that they've ever been in their lives um, and that they're really motivated to, uh, to bring home the gold. Yeah. So U S team, you mentioned the depth, maybe, you know, possibly as, as deep as ever, is there, who are some players for you that stand out as, you know, this will be a make or break maybe type of performance for the U S as to whether that is gold or, or bust. I think, I mean, the most hot button topic, right. And the, probably the biggest area of concern for me is Julie Ertz, right? She is always in the starting lineup. I mean, she is locked down that defensive center mid number six, no question. And so um, I'll be really eager to see what Flacco does in, in these next few games, if for no reason to make sure that there's a good backup plan to to how to replace or come close to trying to replace Julie Ertz in the center of the park. I think, you know, hopefully she'll be healthy. Hopefully she'll make this roster. If she's even close to being healthy, I think we, we can all anticipate seeing her in the Olympics, but if she's 70%, 80%, 90%, how do you manage that? I mean, the Olympics games, they come quick, right? They're every three days or so. So um, that's going to be a big question mark for me. It's something I'm going to be watching for in particular in these upcoming friendlies in June. Well, all right. So let's, let's dig in maybe a little bit. We'll do the analyst cap. Do you, I mean, you have one of the problems maybe in that 2019 phase was a good problem to have was you basically had four, very starting midfield quality midfielders with three positions for that. And, you know, we saw, I think it ended up being Lindsay Horan that, that came off the bench mostly with in that latter stage of that world cup. But do you, with Ertz out, do you try to go with Mewis, Horan, Lavelle and figure out kind of a number six by committee of sorts? Um, Or do you, do you bring in a, there is no like for like swap, I guess, but do you go with like a Sullivan or somebody and, you know, someone who is that more of a true holding mid and then you still have to have one of the three just mentioned on the bench, you know, yeah. to, to be a super sub. Yeah. I mean, I love this because right. Like if you're Vlaco, you're like, okay, what's our plan A? What's our plan B? What's our plan C? I mean, plan A is Julie Arts, right? Okay. <laughs> when Julie, if Julie goes down and it's, you know, what is plan B? I think my, my plan B would be, as you mentioned, like a Haran, Rose Laval, and um, Samantha Mewis in, in the center of midfield. I think that's what I would choose. Um, but that takes a lot of like cohesion and, and, and coordination, especially if, you know, those roles aren't as clear cut as, as it might be with Julie Ertz just sitting. And, and then when you add in the fact that, gosh, those two attacking center mids, how they interplay and how they change with the outside back on their side, with that outside winger and what that triangle looks like um, on the right and the left, like 
oh my gosh, it just, it gets really, really complicated really quickly. But I do think that there's enough time to prepare and to train that. I also don't do though think you need to figure out who that clear number six, backup number six is going to be. And is that, like you said, an Andy Sullivan? Um, I expect um, for Vlatko to answer or to try to answer some of those questions in the June friendly, because you've got to not only have a plan A, but a plan B and a plan C, and maybe even a plan D when you're heading into Olympics, depending on who your opponent is going to be, how you're man- managing injuries. Does anyone have yellow card accumulation? So all of those uh, weapons have to be in your pocket in your pocket, but I would like to see a midfield with, um, with Lavelle and Haran and Mewis and, and see how that plays out and give them a, a few string of minutes here and see what that looks like. That'd be fun. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess easy for us to say kind of just on, on talent, right. Of that makes sense. But then, then you kind of get into everything you just talked about of right. the, the interplay and the relationships and what do you actually yeah. need from it and, and who's the opponent, I guess, being right. the other, the other. Well, and it's like, yeah, you think about it, and you, know, you look at the upcoming opponents in in Portugal and and Jamaica and Nigeria, and, and no disrespect to any of them, but um, it's very different than you know playing against the Netherlands or Sweden or some of these very very top you know five ranked teams that the United States has played against uh, as of late. So it'll be interesting to see how they manage against the competition that's upcoming, but also when you look ahead to, to group play and, and to the tough opponents you're going to see in the Olympics, how those things might need to be tweaked somewhat as well. Uh, what do you think of that, that group? USA, Sweden, Australia, New Zealand, um, you know, the Olympics, there are third place teams that go through, which, you yeah. know, is a different kind of argument, but you know, in some ways, I guess this is maybe the the American arrogance that that people complain about. But like, I I don't have any concerns about not getting out of the group. But then you get into how beat up are you? What does that pathway look like if you're first or second? And and that even it's always Sweden, and Sweden seems to be happy sometimes to take that second place pathway, as we saw in 2019. So, um, you know, I, I think Australia is like got some gaping holes that have been exposed, but is not a pushover. So what do you think of that group? I think it's um, the first adjective that comes to mind when I saw that group was just, this is a physical group. Like this is, you know, four teams that, you know, have athleticism and that are going to want to go after it. Um, And that on their best days are pretty organized. And, and, um, but really do have a a focus on the physical side of the game more than I would say, you know, being the most tactical or savvy all the time or whatever it is. And so, um, so that's what I I think of. And and to your point, I think of how the United States can find a way to um, get through their group stage in a way that sets them up well for the knockouts like you. I, I agree that, I expect to, I mean, I expect to win them. I expect for them to win the gold medal. So that means I expect for them to, to get through the group stages. Um, but how they do it in a way where they're building, where they're staying healthy um, and where they're playing their best soccer, not during the group stage, but during the knockout phases. Well, you know, so many of these things have changed for, for the better. Um, the expansion of the World Cup, you know, still a long way to go, but you know, more opportunities, I guess you'd argue. And, uh, but, but one thing that really, you know, because it's under that IOC umbrella, um, 
the format that we're looking at of this compact schedule and everything. I mean, you experienced that. That hasn't evolved, unfortunately. Even the roster sizes have barely changed since since the beginning of uh, Olympic women's football. Um, so you've seen that cadence of play, a little bit of off play. You know what? Um, you know what is that that like in terms of we we hear about it like needing the versatility and needing to rest, but can you give kind of a, an idea of what it's like to go through? that level of a tournament in that compact of a time frame of two and a half weeks? Yeah, it's brutal. It's, I mean, it's, there's a ton of focus on rest and recovery. And I mean, fortunate for all of these teams, Japan's a small country, so you're not throwing into um, travel into the equation quite as much as you might like when the world cup was in Canada, for example. Um, so the reality is, is, you have to develop a lot of your chemistry and your cohesion before the tournament begins. And that's a challenge now because there's no residencies like we had 20 years ago. I mean, these players are off in their respective club teams and come together for very short amounts of time during these international windows. But you're not going to have the, the luxury of doing that while you're in the tournament because you're so focused on recovery and so focused on getting your legs back as you prepare. So you have to be a team that can learn through video, that can learn through analysis, that doesn't have to actually be out on the field and doing a ton of reps or getting a ton of experience playing alongside this player next to that one. That work already has to be done. Um, and fortunate for the United States is there's a pretty cohesive group here. They've got a lot of experience playing with each other. They're incredibly smart women. They understand the game tactically. Vlatko is very good um, from a tactical standpoint, in my opinion. And so I think they will be set up to, to have some success. But let me tell you, when games come as fast and as furious as they do in the Olympics, you're just kind of hanging on for the ride and knowing that, you know, you'll get your rest at the end of the tournament. And that's uh and that it's a little bit of a challenge, but, you know, it's worth it in the end if you can earn that gold medal for sure. Uh, you know, 2000 Olympics for you. Um, you mentioned the, the grieving process a little bit with with injury. Um, you know, what I'm just kind of curious, the the transition there and what was, um, you know, you look back on the playing career. What do you look back on it as now that you've had some some distance from it, I guess? How do you look back on it? I always tell people, I mean, I, I obviously have been really, really blessed and fortunate to have a lot of success in, in, in my playing career, but I always tell people that the thing I am most proud of is learning how to not be a soccer player anymore. Um, and I think, you know, when, when my career ended with my knee injury, it just kind of faded to black. Um, it just kind of, you just didn't get called in anymore. There was no NWSL. There was no women's professional league. I was in that lull in between leagues. And so if I wasn't getting called into the national team, um, it just kind of went away. And when I think back to, you know, the times when I did get to play and I was riding high and, you know, playing in the WSA and NCAA championships, like, I think, maybe naively, like I thought it was going to last forever. Like you're just in the moment and you're thinking, yeah, you're great. And you're playing well. And, um, and that's not my path. That's not, you know, what, what was in store for me. And so I think one of the main things that I learned was that 
I had learned all of these tools as an athlete, right? Like I learned how to work hard and communicate and be a good teammate and suck it up and suffer and, and grind it out and all of these things. But when I tried to do that with my feelings, like I'm like, hmm, that doesn't work. You actually have to feel them <laughs> and you actually have to like deal with what's ahead of you and deal with, with the loss of this thing that you loved because I had this passion for soccer. And I remember hearing a, a graduation speech and someone said, find your passion and you'll never work a day in your life. And I was like, dude, I found my passion and my passion got taken away from me. So now what am I supposed to do for the next 70 years? Like, that's not fair. And, um, and so I feel like I had, you know, that support system around me who slowly helped me find my way back, slowly helped me kind of figure out who I was without the game and then eventually make my way back into the game, but this time on the media side. So, um, you know, when you're in it, it's awesome. I, I, I don't know that I have all of the perspective at the time. And now when I look back on my career, I think, man, like I did some pretty cool things and, and I helped pave the way for, for some of what we're starting to see today, but I still feel called to do more. I still feel called to, to give back, um, to push the game forward in different ways. And I think now I'm at this point that's a little bit nerve wracking because I don't know what that's going to look like, but I really do feel like I want to continue to make a bigger impact in the game and only time will tell exactly what that will be. Yeah. I, I'm all for, um, I'm happy to call out cliched graduation speeches. That's we got <laughs> to drop the cliches. So yes. Yes. Um, we won't identify anybody. I don't know. <laughs> um, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> won't ask you who was giving it or anything, but um I mean, I we, I, don't, I want to make sure before we we get off the pod too, you know, that we don't undersell, you know, U.S. national team career, top pick, WSA, Carolina Courage. I mean, that that's, you know, I, I do think I say this kind of often, but um, you know, a lot of fans. This is a good thing for growth. A lot of fans are newer to the game, so um, I actually saw this somewhere recently where someone said to me like, "What, what was WPS or or like." It was even something about like FC Kansas City and NWSL. And I was like, you know, I mean, there was WSA before that too. So um, I don't, do you find yourself kind of having to educate people? Not not that, not in a pompous way, I guess, but just like, yes, I played in a pro league that existed in 2001 to 2003. And, and uh, you know, actually it was like easily the best league in the world. And, um, and I know you briefly played at Lyon. I know you've told me that's before yep. the, yeah, before the barnstorming <laughs> Leon days, but um, you know that, that's that's cool. I mean, I don't know people necessarily currently realize those days. Yeah, I think um, I think there's always education involved, right? And I think it's important for us to to know our history and to know our past as we continue to push things forward. Um, I feel like, I mean, not to get too deep, but like we're in a time right now where we're kind of re-examining our history in lots of ways in this country and, and looking back on things and figuring out what are the stories that haven't been told that need to be told and how does that play out here today? And so I feel just really, just really grateful to have been a part of some of this story in a very small way. And, you know, anytime I get the chance to to tell somebody, oh yeah, you know that that stadium that the Santa Clara Broncos won in? Like I got to play in the first game in that stadium. That stadium was built for us. You know, we were the Carolina Courage back in, in 2002. That's where we played and, and trained. And so being able to help connect those dots in, in any way I can is always always a little bit fun for me. Uh, and I'm happy to do it if, uh, if anybody is willing to listen. 
Yeah, the the OG Carolina Courage. No, no <laughs> north in front of that Carolina yeah. from from back then. Yeah. Well, Daniel Slayton, I appreciate you taking the time. A uh, little bit of memory lane, a little bit of looking ahead to Olympics. I, I know everybody listening will look forward to to you on the call for the Olympic Games this summer. I appreciate the time, and uh, it's going to be a fun summer. So everyone, stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Kicking Back, a podcast brought to you by The Equalizer and now with Blue Wire Podcasts. If you missed any of our great interviews from the past or you don't want to miss anything going forward, and I promise you that you don't, please subscribe on any platform you're listening. Please go ahead and rate and review our podcast. It really does help with visibility. That's that for this episode. We'll be back soon with another great guest from the world of women's soccer.